Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 4, 12 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all who all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. Now, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for... Uh, this evening, thank you for our opportunity to, just to dive into your word together as a family. Uh, thank you for uh, your church, your called out ones, those whom you have saved, who you have delivered from darkness, whom eyes you have opened to help them to see you and to know you. I pray, Father God, as we listen to your word, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would do exceedingly above and beyond all that we ask or think. I pray, Father God, that the seed of your word will fall on fertile soil even now. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when you hear the word king or kingdom, uh, what, what kind of comes to mind? Uh, for some of us, when we hear the word king or kingdom, uh, perhaps Disney comes to mind. For others of us, maybe it's the royal family that comes to mind and the royal wedding that uh, many people witnessed last year. Uh, for others, it's basketball. It's King James. After one of our services, I asked that question and one older gentleman who had uh, Elvis uh, Presley type sideburns came. He said, when you said King, I thought of Elvis. I said, well, absolutely, sir. Some people think of Elvis, right? or maybe a musician, a king of pop or whatever. Uh, when, me, when I think of the word king, it reminds me of the year of 2000 when I got to be homecoming king. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Now, 
the truth behind the story is, is that there was uh, a number of guys in the running for homecoming king. And I kind of won by default because the other five guys were not eligible because their GPA wasn't high enough. <laughs> and the one who was the week before got in trouble for having some drug paraphernalia on them. And so I became homecoming king. My kids will never know the full story for the rest of their lives. All they'll know is that their dad was homecoming king in the year of 2000, all right? But whatever comes to mind when you think of the word king, um, it does not probably equate to the weight in which the New Testament uh, uses the term. When Jesus preaches in verse 17 that the kingdom of heaven has come near, for most of us, especially Americans, we, we really don't have a, uh, a, a way in which that we can adequately process this statement or experience this statement because we, uh, we don't st- live in a country in which there is a, a king. Um, and Jesus also says in verse 23, it says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. There's a certain weight that a first century Israelite first century Jewish person would have had when they heard the words, these words that Jesus is preaching, a message of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is used 54 times in Matthew, or kingdom of heaven, excuse me. Uh, Luke uses the term kingdom of God. Both are synonymous. The reason Matthew probably uses kingdom of of heaven is because he's writing mostly to an all Jewish audience and they would have been slow to use the term God. But 54 times, many people say that this is the, one of the central themes of not only the New Testament, but one of the central themes of the entire Bible, this theme of kingdom. The kingdom of God is an announcement that, that the reign of God, the rule of God has come near. And this was an announcement that the average Jewish person in the first century was longing to hear. They desired to hear as they read uh, their old, the Old Testament, as they read the Torah, as they read the Pentateuch, as they read the prophets, as they read the, the wisdom literature, they would have read a story that was about the kingdom. In fact, in Genesis chapter one through three, it's, a, it's imagery and it's a picture of a king who creates and who owns all things. And at the crown of creation, he creates Adam and Eve, and they are to be what we call vice regents or little kings. They are to to steward all that God has made. And he places them inside of of a garden, and they are to, to, to live under his rule and under his reign. But in Genesis chapter three, we see that Adam and Eve, they sin, they rebel against God rather than submit to his Rulership, Rather than submit to being under his reign, they try to rule and reign themselves. And as a result of their sin, chaos entered into the world, brokenness entered into the world, loss entered into the world. In Genesis chapter 4, we see uh, one brother murders another brother, and the story gets worse and worse and worse. The Bible is a story about kingship. And it offers two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this age or the kingdom of this world. And so when you think about the Old Testament, you think about how God then uh, seeks to reestablish his kingdom by adopting uh, a man by the name of Abraham uh, and, and Israel as his own. 
He calls Israel his own child. And we see that he uh, delivers Israel from the, the hand of, a, of an abusive king by the name of Pharaoh. Miraculously, he declares war on Pharaoh and delivers his people in a miraculous way. And he leads them out of Egypt. Miraculously, he splits the Red Sea. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 through 2, uh, Moses actually writes a song about God. A song about his salvation and how he, this king, delivered them from the rulership of another king. It says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and his riders into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Now look at what he says in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That is kingly language. The Bible is a message about, about kingship. And then we see that Israel, they once again, like Adam and Eve, when they are tested in the wilderness, they rebel against God's reign and God's rule. And it doesn't take them long before they're in the wilderness and they're, they're creating an idol, creating a false god. And so from Abraham to Moses, then to David, we see that Israel has a king and this man is a, a king after God's own heart. But even David, he sins. He turns his heart away from the Lord. And then Solomon, his son, it seems like Solomon is going to get it right. And, and God cuts a covenant with David that from his lineage will come a ruler, will come a king who will make everything right. And it looks like Solomon will be the person. The kingdom is moving forward. It's expanding. And Solomon, just like David, turns his heart away from the Lord. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acts pridefully and the kingdom ends up splitting in two. And then it is a sad story after that. Israel, God's people who were made to reign under his rule, is taken captive by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and eventually the Greeks. And every Israelite is lamenting. They have a song in the night, just like we just sung. They're wondering if God sees them, if God is for them as they are under the thick thumb of oppression. But there's this promise in the Old Testament that God will send a ruler. And that's what we find ourselves here in Matthew. Matthew is making the case to his readers that, that God has sent this Messiah and his name is Jesus. And in Matthew chapter one, he's showing how Jesus is the Messiah because he is from the lineage of Abraham and he's from the lineage of David. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew shows how he, Jesus, is this Messiah and how he has fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies, how he's the one who's going to, be, who's going to come out of Egypt and is going to be born and, and, and live in Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 3, we see that uh, this Messiah has come because John the Baptist has come like Elijah as the prophets has spoken, paving the way for this Messiah. And last week we looked in Matthew chapter four and we saw how Jesus is worthy of the title of this Messiah because Satan does not have a claim on him. 
where Adam and Eve sinned and fell short and gave in to the voice of the serpent, where Israel sinned and fell short and gave in to the voice of the serpent, where David sinned and fell short, where Solomon sinned and fell short, Jesus will not. He looks the serpent in the eye as he is tested and he prevails. So now Matthew wants to show us how Jesus fulfills this, this prophecy. And he wants to show us the span of Jesus's ministry, the span of Jesus's kingdom. And he does this by pointing us back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, you can listen to this. We don't have it on the screen. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, if you look at the text from Matthew, you see that this is exactly what he is quoting here about this great light. Verse 15, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. Back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressor yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian for every trampling boot of battle. And the, the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And so Matthew takes a portion of what is being read in Isaiah chapter 9, and he's trying to show the readers that this Jesus has come and that his kingdom is near. And this Jesus' kingdom spans not only to, to those who are in Israel, but it will span to the nations that this, this Messiah is not just Israel's Messiah, but it is the entire nation's Messiah. And that's the span of the kingdom. But we also see in this text the demand of the kingdom. Jesus came preaching a message of the kingdom, and this message of the kingdom came with demands. And the first demand is to turn. We see in verse 17, it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this message should be familiar to you because uh, we've talked about the, the ministry of John the Baptist. In John, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we read these words that John the Baptist was in the wilderness preaching, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus picks up on John's message. John has been arrested for preaching the good news of the kingdom and actually for preaching uh, to Herod. Herod, who was uh, the kind of king of Jerusalem and calling Herod out on an adulterous affair. And so he's arrested. Now, Jesus begins his ministry once John is arrested by preaching this message, saying the kingdom of God is near. Life with God under his rule is present. It's present because he is present. The king is present. And the message of the kingdom, the demand of the kingdom is that those who will come under the rule of God are those who will turn, who will turn away from their sin to their savior. 
who were turned away from their own kingdom to the kingdom of heaven, who were turned away from self-sufficiency to Christ's sufficiency, who will surrender all. And Jesus came preaching this message in all of Galilee and Capernaum. He hit village after village. There's about 200 villages where he would visit. And he came preaching this message, letting them know that their long-awaited Messiah is here. The one that they've longed for has come. Verse 18, we see the demands of the kingdom even clearly, even more clear as Jesus has two conversations with two sets of brothers. It says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he, you know, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So Jesus is walking up, uh, on the sea. He sees two uh, brothers, they're out fishing. And he says, follow me and I will make you fisher of men. Now in Luke chapter five, I think we have a fuller picture of, uh, of what happens. Here, Matthew gives us a shorter synopsis. In Luke five, the Bible says that Jesus sees them on the sea and uh, they're, they're fishing. And Jesus calls out to Peter and he says, yo, Peter, 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 Peter. All right, that's not what it says, but I'm using my holy imagination. And Peter responds and he says, Peter, cast your net to the other side. They were fishing and toiling all night. They couldn't catch anything. And Peter listens to Jesus. He casts his net to the other side and he's an experienced fisherman. And this is, a, this is pointing to the sovereignty of Jesus, pointing to the fact that he is the one who has created all things. He is the one who has all authority and all power. He controls where the fish goes. He controls water and its density. He can walk on water. He controls the sea and how it blows. We'll see this throughout the gospel. Jesus is God. He's so much God that he can point from the seashore and say, turn your nets to the other side. And the Bible says that, that Peter does that and they catch so much fish that their boat begins to sink. And Peter comes back to shore, he falls on his face, and he confesses Jesus as Lord. And then Luke says, upon that confession, that Jesus looks at them and says, follow me, and I will make you fisher of men. He invites King, the, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew into a, a deeper relationship with him. Now, by this point, Jesus has probably been doing public ministry for, for over a year. They've probably already heard or maybe even seen him turn water into wine. But what Jesus does here is he tells them, okay, you guys have been hanging out with me. Um, you guys have, have, have been enthralled with me, uh, but now it's time for you to truly follow me and be my disciples. And in the first century, this is radical because rabbis did not ask disciples to follow them. Disciples would kind of just choose to follow rabbis and, and pay the rabbis money just to spend time with them. But Jesus, once again, is showing his authority, showing he is not like any other rabbi. He's showing that he is the one who chooses. He is the one who calls. He is the one who summons people to himself. And he does it. And there's something about Jesus that makes these disciples Stop what they're doing. Lay aside their, their career. Lay aside their lives and say, Jesus, I want to be with you. And notice what Jesus says. He says, follow me. To follow him, that means they have to make a, a cognizant decision. 
It means that they have to leave one life and turn. But it also means that they have to give them their heart and I will make you. That is a message of transformation. A disciple is a person who makes the decision to set their affections on Jesus, to become a learner of Jesus, a student of Jesus, and to be transformed by him. And they're also a person who is coming to live their life on mission for Jesus. And I will make you fish for people. They're people who understand that they are being called away from something, but to something. If you are a Christian, you have been called away from one way of living to a person and not just to a person, but to a radically different way of living. So my question for you today is, are you following like Jesus? And have you met this Jesus who is king and Lord over all? Have you made a, a cognizant, a, a, a decision to give him all of you? And perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've thought about giving your life uh, to Jesus, but maybe you've come to a place where you say, you know, I'm not sure if this Jesus thing works or or maybe you're at a different place where you say, you know, I want to follow Jesus, but I just don't have it together yet. And I want to encourage you just like I encouraged uh, one of my, my children this week. This more, uh, one week, this uh, one morning this week, I was getting them ready for school. And I asked one of my children, I said, hey, why, uh, why haven't you or what's keeping you, excuse me, from, from following Jesus? You talk about Jesus so fondly and you pray to him so, so fervently. You're so excited when we read the Bible. Like, what's keeping you from following Jesus? And my child said, it's my anger. So sometimes I just get so angry and I just feel like I can't help myself. And so I want to get, get my anger under control and then I'm going to follow Jesus. And I said, listen, you don't come to Jesus when you have your anger under control. You come to Jesus acknowledging that it controls you and that you can't help yourself. You come to Jesus realizing that he can change you and you can't change yourself. And the same is true here. that salvation is not by works. It's not according to your good deeds. It's not according to your profile or, 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 or how well you have it together. It's the opposite. In fact, if you think that you can become a Christian because of something in and of yourself is good enough or because you can do it, you are sicker than you think. You are lost. Throughout the gospel of Matthew, Jesus comes near to those who are broken. And he's going to tell us next week in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that, that, that those who are part of the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, are those who are broken, are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who realize like, I can't save myself. I can't help myself. I don't have it together. And I need help. But perhaps you're here today and you are a Christian. God's invitation for you today is to remember what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a lifelong learner, to be a fully devoted follower who surrendered their life to Jesus and who every day is surrendering their life to Jesus, who sees Jesus as the most supreme, amazing, and greatest treasure. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this parable. Parable is a small story with a big meaning. And it's called a parable of the kingdom. He tells a parable about a man who's just walking down uh, a field. And while he's walking in his field, he sees something odd and he begins to dig. And what he finds is a treasure, a treasure that is more valuable than anything he has. And the Bible says that he then hides the treasure back in the field. He goes and he sells everything, everything, everything that he has. And he comes back and he buys the field in order to have that treasure. Jesus tells his listeners later on in Matthew, that's a kingdom citizen. A kingdom citizen is not a person who comes to Jesus because they think it's cool or who believes following Jesus is just coming to church on Sunday or checking off a list of of rules or being a good moral person. No, a Christian is a person who has found the absolute greatest treasure that they have ever found. They found true love. They found grace and mercy in the face of Jesus. They found one that is incomparable, incomparable. They found one who is unmutable and unchanging. They found one who has accepted them just as they are, but who has the power to transform them and who will not leave them as they are. They found one worth following. They found a king. The demands of the kingdom is radical abandonment. The demands of a kingdom is is a person coming to a place where they love Jesus so, so much that their love compared to everything else by someone who's quickly glancing seems like hate. Jesus said one is not worthy of him unless they hate their mother and their father. Now that's hyperbola that Jesus was using. He was basically saying that that how do you know if someone has been given a transformed heart? How do you know if someone belongs to me? How do you know if the Holy Spirit has regenerated them? How do you know if they are mine? You'll know because their love for me is a love that is deep, a love that keeps them coming back. You remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus preaches this crazy heart sermon? People have followed him because he just fed them, uh, just fed the multitude in the middle of a desert. 5,000 people, he gave them a KFC chicken. They like, yo, this man is dope. He fed us out of nothing. He had one bucket of chicken and he fed all these people. Took a little boy's lunch and made a buffet. And the next day, the Bible says that all these people, thousands of people are following him. And Jesus is not about having a big crowd of followers. No, he's about people having a heart for him. People wanting him, not just what, they can, what he can give them. You guys remember what Jesus did? He preached a hard, confusing sermon. Like he intentionally turned them away. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy of me. He's talking to to Jewish people who grew up under the law, who knew that it was against God's law to consume blood. And the Bible says that the multitudes turned away and he looked at his disciples and he said, won't you leave too? And they said, Lord, where else (laughs) can Like, where else can we go? You changed our life. We we gave up our family business. We gave up our boat. We gave up our 401k. We we gave it all up because of you. Where else can we go? Now, that was a weird sermon, but we're here. (laughs) 
And that's a disciple. A disciple is one who has come to a place where Jesus is Lord and King of their life. And they say, Jesus, I am on this journey for you. And I, I am okay with and expect for you to turn my life upside down, for you to prod and to poke. And because I, am tr- because I trust you and because I am learning to trust you, when you reveal a part of yourself, a part of your kingdom, the ways of your kingdom, I am going to surrender to what you have revealed because I am no longer king of my life. You are. Now check this. Imagine. If after winning Homecoming King in 2000, by technicality, (laughs) I walked and lived my my life as if I was the actual king of the world. You'll say, Jamal, you are foolish. It's Homecoming King, bro. In 2000, there's been 18 other Homecoming Kings in your school alone. But imagine that was me. If I just walked around, I'm like, no, I'm king. I, I want homecoming king. You say you're a fool. Well, the same is true for you and me when we try to live as kings and queens of our own lives on a day-to-day basis. It's foolish. We're not qualified. We're not smart enough. Only one person deserves the title of king, and it's Jesus. Third, not only do we see the span of the kingdom, which is a universal span, which is a part of God's sovereign plan, the meta narrative of Scripture is a meta narrative, it's a story of kingship. It's a story of God reclaiming the earth as his kingdom, making everything that is wrong right. Second, the demands of the kingdom is repentance and radical abandonment. It's understanding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we're willing to, to radically abandon whatever we're doing if Jesus tells us to. But third, we're going to see the plan of the kingdom. Now, this is fascinating. Look at your Bibles, verse 23. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Yo, when you read the Bible, you can be so tempted to just read that and just move on. Number one, this is a historical event. Not only has Christian authors talked about Jesus of Nazareth, and all the amazing things he did from, uh, dating back to the first century. People who live first and second century, uh, Christians who report this is what the New Testament is. We also have non-Christians. You have men like Josephus and other historians who were not Christians, who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, who would say that he still did. There were things that he did that no one could explain. There were miracles upon miracles that he did and that he turned a whole region upside down through these miracles. This Jesus of Nazareth is going village to village, town to town, in a place that is oppressed, in a place that has been under foreign rule um, all the way back uh, uh, when the Assyrians came to take this place captive. And Jesus shows up like he owns everything. 
He is in control. He is seeing people who are blind. He's giving them sight. He's seeing people who are, who are paralyzed and all of a sudden they have movement in their limbs. He is touching people with leprosy and they no longer have leprosy. I mean, he is just showing out. And not only is he healing, but he's teaching and he's preaching. And what he's doing, what Jesus is doing is he's showing. He's affirming and confirming his message that the kingdom of God is here, that God is amongst his people by doing things that only God can do. The Bible says that he went to the synagogues and he taught and he preached. Mark chapter 1 says that when he taught and when he preached, he did it in a way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had never seen before, that no one had ever seen before. In fact, when people would hear Jesus teach, they would regularly walk away saying, he preaches and teaches as one with authority. First five letters of the word authority, A-U-T-H-O-R, maybe six, author. <laughs> I'm not Jesus, I can make mistakes, <laughs> I'm really not the king, amen. Like, brother, that's six letters. How you get the author? He preached as the author. <laughs> Y'all so crazy. Of all things. And he was the author of all things because he created them. He knew them. So here's the thing. The next few weeks, I want you to really be excited and live in the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we're starting a sermon, uh, a memory challenge from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where we're going to memorize these chapters over the next 20 weeks together. And the reason why is because even though we call it the Sermon on the Mount, it's really a sermon about the kingdom. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to reorient everyone. He's going to kind of deconstruct what most of the people who are following him were taught to believe, and he's going to go deeper and show them that following God is not about external religion and moralism. That God is not after primarily our good works and our good deeds. That what makes one righteous is an alien righteousness that comes from him. But he's also going to show them that it's, it's deeper than the external, that, that God is about heart change. It's going to say stuff like it's no, uh, that, 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 that adultery is no, not just physically sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, but it's also lusting after them in their heart. That murder is not just physically taking someone's life, but it's, it's lashing out to a brother or sister in, in anger, calling them fool. And what he's going to do is he's going to teach them and show them that they have a deeper issue, a bigger problem, a bigger issue than they ever thought they had. And in discovering that, it's going to lead them, his listeners, and us to our knees and to our face where he wants us to a position of brokenness and mourning to where we can be humble and say, Jesus, you are our teacher. We are your disciples. Help us to follow you. But notice the plan of the kingdom, that Jesus does all these things. He heals all who are afflicted, various diseases, he has the power and authority over those who are demon-possessed. Verse 25, large crowds follow him. This is the beginning of Jesus shaping and creating his church. An alternate community, a countercultural movement that is going to eventually turn Rome upside down. That's going to start off with 12 ordinary followers. And by the third century, there's going to be millions of millions of followers all because they lived in an alternate way. The plan of God's kingdom 
is to restore all things. And when Jesus came, he gave a taste of it. Now, here's the issue. The issue for the the disciples was, was that they expected a political leader. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus rarely refers to himself as the Messiah. Often he refers to himself with the title son of man, which is simply son of Adam. But it has a double connotation because if you go home and read Daniel chapter nine, you'll see that Daniel has this vision of one who's called the son of man, meaning that he looked like he was human. And then when he describes this person who looks like he is human, this person has uh, God-like qualities. And so Daniel is seeing a pre-incarnate Christ in a prophecy. So Jesus is going to use this term son of man as opposed to Messiah because he knows when he says Messiah, what the disciples hear is a political leader who's going to physically break them out from Roman oppression and who's going to reign and rule at the present moment. That's why in Acts chapter one, verse six, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend and go into heaven, the disciples are like, yo, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Um, is it time for you now to reign in Israel? Isn't it time for you to set up your throne and like overthrow Caesar? And then what does Jesus do? He says, no, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Go, you've got work to do. See, the first installment of Jesus' kingdom was not a physical, political kingdom. The first installment was him coming after those whom God has chosen to be his, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And he was going to do that through his disciples. The ultimate plan of God is to restore all things. I want to close with a picture from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 7. I want you to hear these words. It's a beautiful picture that reminds us of what is to come, a prophecy that the Israelites would have been very familiar with, that they would have longed to see. It says the people... I'm sorry, then a a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. Listen to this. This coming Messiah is a Messiah of justice. Part of what Jesus is going to do with his disciples is disciple them holistically to be people of justice, people that care about those who are marginalized and oppressed and broken. Jesus, when he came, notice he didn't come to Jerusalem and spend time first and foremost with the elite. He went to Galilee, to little towns and villages, to people who were oppressed, and he gave them hope. He will strike the land with the scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. 
and an infant will play beside the cobra's pit. What a picture. And a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. And they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full as the knowledge of the Lord, as the sea is filled with water. We started in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with God reigning and ruling over creation, with there being absolute peace, sin entered into the world, chaos accompanied it. We see in Isaiah this picture that God is in the process of restoring all things. Revelations 22, 1 through 5, he is going to make all things right. He's going to heal all diseases, and there will be utter peace. And this is the picture that we want to see of God's kingdom, and this is what we live for. This is a reason that we follow Jesus, because he is in the process of making all things new. And every Sunday we gather together and we take a meal and this meal points us back to the crucifixion of Jesus. Points us back to the night that he was betrayed where he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And we take this meal to remember what Christ has done for us, that we follow him because he, he died and gave his life for us so that we can have a right to the tree of life. But it also grounds us in the present. Every week when we come into this church and we take communion together, we take it as an alternate community as a countercultural community. We take it as those who are in the world, but who are not of the world. We take it as a reminder that we are salt and light, and as a reminder that we are made righteous, not by our good works or our deed, but by what Christ has done. And we also take this meal looking forward, looking forward to the new Jerusalem, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will all feast in the presence of Jesus in a land of no more, no more cancer, no more arthritis, no more mortgage, no more, no more brokenness. As you take communion today, take it with a longing in your heart, with a spirit that says Maranatha. Those in the front, you can come to the front. Those in the back, you can come to the back. Gluten-free and alcohol-free uh, communion is to my left. Let's pray. Lord, you are so, so merciful, so beautiful, so good. We thank you for allowing us to, to be a part of your kingdom, to be citizens of your kingdom. We thank you for a place to belong, a seat at the Father's table. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to bask in it, to enjoy it. Help us, Father God, no matter where we are, if we're here in Louisville, if we're listening online as a sent one, Lord, to remember that we are following you and you are a king and that you are making us and that you have given us a mission to fish for people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.